As you're taking your seat, you can go ahead and open your Bible to Genesis chapter 26. As a, as a parent, I, uh, I find it fascinating to watch my children grow kind of into themselves. If you're a parent, you know what I mean, right? As your, your kids kind of develop and they grow, it's fascinating to watch them kind of flourish and blossom to kind of see who they become and, and to be able to look at them and see their unique personalities and yet at the same time to in many ways see glimpses of yourself in your kids. Parents, can you relate to that? It's a fascinating experience, and it happens in ever-increasing ways as your children increase in age. In many ways, they are mini-me's, right? They're little reflections and representations of me and you. I can walk down to the kids' ministry, and I can probably, if I know you well enough, I can pick out your kids pretty quickly. They look like you. Sometimes they begin to talk like you. They emulate aspects of of just how you operate, maybe it's your facial expressions, maybe you hear kids say things at times and you're like, oh, that's me. Or, that's my wife. And and, you know, they, they just, they pick up on these things and they kind of develop in a way that really reflects you. And I think every adult in this room, if you don't have kids, then, then maybe you can't relate to that yet or, or you just can't relate to that. But, but every adult in this room is a child and so you can actually relate to this experience, I trust. You can, you can kind of pinpoint probably that exact moment in time when in shock and horror, you realized you had become your parents. No offense, mom and dad, I love you. Uh, you know what I mean, right? Where all of a sudden, you're kind of like, oh my goodness, I have become my mom or I've become my dad. And, and maybe your spouse reminds you of that often. But listen, for good or for ill, and I trust there's, there's some good in there, we often follow in the footsteps of our parents. And in this passage, Isaac is doing just that. When we read through this passage, when you hear it read and you're following along in your Bible, if, if it feels or sounds or you sense that it's familiar to you as you're kind of tracking through this passage, that's a good thing. If it kind of feels a little bit like deja vu, that's a good thing. If that's what you feel, if that's what you sense, that's good because that is the intent of the author of this book, Moses. In fact, this chapter, chapter 26, it's more than likely that this chapter is not in chronological order. Um, It's not kind of following chronologically, kind of in the flow of the the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Instead, it's a little bit out of order. We we saw last week in chapter 25 that that Isaac and Rebekah had given birth to Jacob and Esau, and it seems like we're actually going back in time, and we're getting a bit of a snapshot of the life of Isaac. And, And this is not unusual, by the way, to have a passage that's actually chronologically out of order. And Moses does this intentionally. In fact, he's already done this on two occasions in the book of Genesis. I think of chapter 2 of Genesis when he actually, he's given the creation account. And then what he does is he backs up in chapter 2 and he wants to revisit the day that man was made. Or think of chapter 10 and 11 of Genesis where we're given the table of nations 
that actually chronologically comes after, in chapter 10, that comes chronologically after chapter 11, after the dispersal from the Tower of Babel. So it's not, it's not unusual. In fact, it's quite intentional. You say, why, why would Moses do this? Well, here's why. He does this because it serves some greater thematic or theological purpose. And that's what we find him doing here. This chapter, in contrast to Abraham, really is all about Isaac. And it's just one chapter. And consider that in light of the fact that Abraham was given, really, from chapter 12 all the way to chapter 25. Isaac gets one chapter, and it summarizes, really, the the whole of his life. But what we're supposed to see is really fascinating. It's it's just amazing what Moses has done here. These events of the life of of, uh, Isaac have been carefully selected and curated by Moses to closely mirror the life of Abraham, his father. And therein lies the point of this passage. You see, we're supposed to read this passage and think Isaac is just like his father. He he, he operates the same way. The patterns of behavior mirror the patterns of Abraham, his father. He's a chip off the old block. In all of his successes and his failures, his life follows the basic pattern of Abraham's life. And most importantly, what we're supposed to kind of take note of here is that like Abraham, his father, Isaac's life is a life of faith, faith in the promise of God. Of all the footsteps that he and we must follow, It is the footsteps of the faith that matter the most. And so, there is a bit of repetition in this passage, but repetition, as they say, is the key to learning, and God wants us to learn some things through this somewhat repetitive passage. But I think there's some unique features of this passage that I trust are going to bless you and stand out maybe in a unique way. I want us to see that We are called to be following in the footsteps of the faith, and that requires first that we receive the promise of God's presence in the moments of testing. Look at what he says, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land. That phrase should just be significant in this moment. It should trigger in your mind a memory of Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 20 when Abraham, too, experienced a famine in the land. And notice, we'll keep moving. We won't slow down like that every, t- every two seconds, I promise. Besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. So it's not the same famine. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. This should sound so familiar. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all of these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. 
So this famine instantly triggers a memory of Abraham who experienced the very same thing. And in fact, it seems like Isaac is following in his father's footsteps by heading down to Egypt. It appears that he's on his way when, there, when God stops him in his tracks and appears to him. Again, something unique. God had appeared to Abraham on numerous occasions, and now in this moment, God appears to Isaac. He speaks to him, and he tells him to remain at Gerar, not to go down to Egypt, and instead to stay and to receive the promises made at first to Abraham. We've been looking at these promises over and over again, almost on a weekly basis. These promises that were given to Abraham back in chapter 12 and 15 and 17, the the kind of three-pronged promise of God was that Abraham would receive land, offspring, and blessing. Land, offspring, and blessing. But I want you to notice, I don't know if you caught this, there's something really significant that is supposed to stand out, and this is going to be a major feature of this chapter Notice that he gives him these promises, but he says this first in verse 3. Sojourn in this land, and if you like to highlight, circle, mark your Bible, I would suggest this would be a great place. And he says this, and I will be with you. This is one of the most important statements in the Bible. It is arguably the most important theme of the Bible. This, think about it, was what was lost in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. What was so significant about that moment was that they lost intimate access to the presence of God. In the garden, they walked with God, they talked with God, they dwelt with God, and God dwelt among them. The best part of the garden was not all of its beauty, was not all of the the rich goodness of the food, it was not even the human relationship that God had given them, it wasn't even the fact that there was no sin, it was that they got to experience the intimate presence of God all the time. They lost this. And what God is promising to Isaac is a return to what was once lost, the presence of God. I will be with you, he says. Trust me, believe in me, step out in faith, and I will be with you. I want to give you a bit of a summary statement here. I think when we think about the promises of God, I think there's there's kind of one way that we can sum them all up. And, And here it is. I'll put it on the screen. Okay? The promises of God are about the presence of God. Okay? Every promise of God, without exception, is ultimately about the very presence of God. I mean, just think for a moment about land and about offspring and about blessing. And think about what this means, right? Whenever we hear these promises, we ought to move backward into the garden and think about the context for these great promises. You see, it was there that God had given them land. And the best part about the land was that God was there with them. 
offspring. We know that this promise of offspring is going to to land not ultimately in Isaac, but in a future offspring who will be Emmanuel, God with us, and who will be the means by which and through whom humanity can enter back into, gain access back into the intimate presence of God for all eternity. Blessing, the promise of blessing is about, listen, thriving in the context of the presence of God. It is the place where life is truly found. All of the promises of God lead us ultimately to Jesus Christ, who is the presence of God among us, the one who will be with us. This is a remarkable moment in Isaac's life. God is speaking to him, and he's promising to be with him, but it's also a sobering moment in his life. I'm not sure if this is the the moment Isaac was saved, you know, if this is the, the kind of the salvation moment where, like Abraham, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It may be this moment right here, possibly. Because what we see is that in order to receive God, you must believe God. Faith is about believing the promises of God, believing in the God of the promise. And so the call to receive God's promise by faith, it came in the form of a test. God tells him, don't go to Egypt where there will surely, by the way, be water and food. Instead, stay here in Gerar, stay in the land of promise. This was all a part of the the territory that God had promised to give Abraham, and now he was promising to give Isaac. But you see, to stay in Gerar was to put his life in God's hands, literally. It would be costly, and it would be dangerous. We're going to find that out in the rest of the passage. And it reminds us that this is just just simply the the call of faith to every person. You know, when Jesus says, follow me, he never promises that it's going to be easy or safe. In fact, he promises the exact opposite. He promises it's going to be costly. He says that you need to count the cost. He says you need to deny yourself. He says you need to pick up your cross daily and follow him. And he also says it's going to be dangerous. He said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. Through many tribulations, you you must enter the kingdom of God. But he does promise, this is the best part of the gospel, that he does promise he will be with you. And whatever it is that you may have to give up pales in comparison to what you will gain. That's part of what God is, is asking Isaac to believe. I know it's costly, I know it's dangerous, I know it's confusing, I know you can't see how this is all going to to kind of unravel and unfold, but I'm asking you to trust that I will make sure you are well taken care of, that you will be provided for, that it's going to be better if you do it my way than if you choose to do it your way, and this is the, the, the temptation we all face, isn't it? To not trust God's way, to trust our way instead. I love, I love what Paul says about the, the idea of, of giving up in order to gain. Philippians 3, verse 8, Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's the attitude. That's the heart of the believer. You know, I think from this passage, we can just be reminded that God will often give us a famine in our lives. It may not be a literal famine. It could be a spiritual famine. It could be emotional. It could be a famine of a trial of a multifaceted trial, kind, different variation, whatever it may be. But God gives us these famines in our life to produce or to strengthen our faith. What is the heart of the test that God gives to his people? Here it is, ready? You can boil it down to this. Anytime, anytime God is testing you, here's what he's, here's what he's gonna get to in, in your heart, okay? Here's the heart of the test. He's saying to you, every time he's testing your faith, he's saying to you, am I enough for you? That's, that's the heart of every single test the Lord's gonna give you. He wants you to be able to determine that he is indeed enough for you. He's asking you this question. Every time he tests your faith, he's asking you this question. Do you want me more than you want anything else in this world, anything else in this life? Am I the pearl of great price? Are you willing to sell it all? Are you willing to let go of everything in order to take hold of that which is truly life? Are you willing to let it all go so you can wrap your arms around me? How do you know if that's the kind of faith that you possess? Well, I think, again, this text here tells us that faith is evidenced in obedience. Remember, Isaac is walking. He's following in the footsteps of the faith, and we're supposed to pay attention here to Abraham's obedience. Notice verse 5. The reason these promises are being passed on to Isaac are because, yes, God is sovereign and God has chosen him, but also because Abraham obeyed God's voice. And, and just listen to this language. Obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And again, if there's a bit of deja vu coming to you right now, that's because we literally said those words together at the very beginning of the service. Do you remember that? Isn't that amazing? And you know what's happening right here? This is an allusion to Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1. Again, we, we, Mark read this over us at the beginning of the service, and I just want you to know that this is all in the providence of God, okay? We didn't plan to do you know, the New City Catechism uh, question 6 on today because we were going to see this verse popping up in the text. We're not smart enough for that. But it's amazing. I just want you to see. I, I think when things like this happen, by the way, I think God is saying, pay attention, Okay? When we see God sovereignly putting pieces together that are humanly unexplainable, you know, it's not like, oh, what a coincidence. It's kind of like, no, God's like, pay attention. And I think God wants us to hear something, okay? God wants us to see what it says here in Deuteronomy 11, verse 1. Notice, you shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commands always. Abraham's obedience is highlighted, and this illusion is powerful. Here's why. Because later Israelite readers would immediately think, when they, when they heard these words in chapter 26, verse 5, immediately their minds would run to Deuteronomy 11.1, 1, where they were reminded to hear this list of words, and they would be prompted to obey the law just like their father Abraham obeyed the law. And they would be reminded, listen, that it was obedience that flowed out of a life of faith. 
This is, this is so important to see. Before the law was given, God's people are depicted as those who have faith and therefore obey the word of God. I just, I think it's so powerful to be reminded, listen, that faith produces obedience, which leads, listen, you're like, well, what's the byproduct of this? Here's, here's the byproduct. It leads to the enjoyment of God's presence, the enjoyment of God's presence. I will be with you. And, and that, that there, that, that thought, listen, that if you have faith in God, and you're living in, in obedience to him, the enjoyment of God's presence, knowing that God has promised you, I will be with you, should be a source of fuel for your life. It should be a source of, of encouragement, of comfort, but it should fill you with courage as you step out into the world. You, you don't go alone. Never do you go alone out into this world. I will be with you. There's a sense in which that, that phrase right there should make God's people feel invincible. Right? If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer? Nobody. Nobody. And I understand, listen, we are living in turbulent times. Economically, geopolitically, culturally, we are in the midst of, a, of not just seeing war in other parts of the world. Listen, we need to be reminded that every day we walk out into this world, we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. But if God is for me, listen, if God is for me, who can be against me? Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Psalm 18 verse 29 says, God, with you I can come against a troop. With you I can leap over a wall. Church, we've been given the promises of God in Christ. We can face moments of testing and trial, moments of difficulty and danger with confidence and with courage. We can walk by faith, not by sight. Because our God is with us. Will there be challenges? Absolutely. Will we face doubts in this life? Yes, we sure will. Will there be lapses in our faith? Absolutely. That's why, secondly, we must remember the protection of God's presence in the face of sin. It's fascinating here. Again, we, we pick up the story. You, you would again think, well, with this truth, I mean, Isaac would feel invincible. Surely he's not going to default to sin. Eh. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Oh, my goodness. Sister wife episode three. Why? Look, for he feared. He fe Again, the greatest challenge to our faith is fear. He feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she wasn't att attractive in appearance. Again, this is all, it's sounding familiar, right? Twice this happened with Abraham. Except Abraham actually had a better excuse. She was his sister. Rebecca's Isaac's cousin. When he had been there a long time, just notice this, okay? So this, so he, he, he gives his wife, you know, he's like, tell him, tell him that you're my sister and, and, uh, and we'll figure this thing out. Well, when would they figure this out? Do you, it's been a, a long time passes. 
Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die here because of her. And Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, we we run into, again, a familiar character, Abimelech. It's more than likely this is not the same individual that Abraham had dealt with. In fact, most most scholars believe that Abimelech is more like a title. It's not a name. It's, It's a title like Pharaoh. In fact, the name Abimelech actually means my father is king. The same thing we're going to see with, with the, the, the word Phicol. It's probably not the same man. It's likely a title as well. It's like a commander. So these are people who are holding an office. And what we find here is that Isaac falls into the same sin as his father. Like his father, he too is frail. And his faith is mingled at times with fear. You know, sin makes us stupid. Desires make us dumb. Fear makes us foolish. Fear causes us to do foolish things, to to compromise on our convictions, to to lack integrity in our dealings with others. It pushes us to do things that we wouldn't otherwise do. What follows here is, is utterly humiliating and shameful, especially in light of the length of time that passes before uh, not, not Isaac coming forth in honesty and truthfulness, but in being exposed in his sin. By the way, that's a great reminder. Listen, be sure your sins will find you out. It is far better, listen, to bring your sins to the forefront than have them in a humiliating way exposed. And I'm not sure there's a more humiliating way to have your sins exposed than to have them cataloged in a book for all eternity for all people to read, the best-selling book of all time. How would you like that? But you know what this reminds us of? Isaac is not the fulfillment of the promise. Isaac is a man just like you and just like me. He is a sinner who falls short of the glory of God. Isaac needs a savior. Isaac can't save himself. He's not smart enough. He's not He tried. He tried to save him. He tried to spare death. He tried to avoid death. And then what he does is he makes this foolish decision. And what he ultimately does is, is he's willing in his foolishness to sacrifice the most precious earthly relationship he has, his relationship with his wife. And at the same time, he jeopardizes the very promise of God. Because if Isaac and his, his wife isn't pure, if, if Isaac and, and, and uh, Rebecca aren't married, aren't together, then the promised line, the offspring that is promised, will come to an end. I mean, how cowardly, how selfish, how faithless. How so very much like us. And this is, this is a warning in one sense to us, okay? As we walk out into this world that is often hostile and antagonistic to our faith, We cannot be driven by fear. We must be driven by faith. We cannot compromise our character and our convictions. We cannot bring reproach upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We must walk in faith and believe that the protection of his presence is enough for us.
God's presence and power, listen, ought to put our fears to flight. Let me just warn you again with Proverbs 29, 25. It says, the fear of man lays a snare. Those who trust in the Lord are safe. And I think we see again in this passage that God is able to protect his people. He is able to protect his people. That's what he does. He actually protects Isaac here. So what if we fail? Do we forfeit the protection of God if we fail in obedience to him? Here's the answer. No, you will never ever lose God's protection over your soul. Our sin, let me say it like this, our sin does not cancel God's promises or remove God's protection. Aren't you thankful for that? The promises of God do not depend on the power of man. And here, he, again, his sin is exposed, and, and this is a grace of God. When God exposes sin, he is actually protecting his people. And Abimelech, you say, how did he expose him? Well, Abimelech looks out his window, and he sees Isaac laughing, to play on his name, by the way, laughing with Rebekah. And listen, you've got to kind of read between the lines here, like laughing. Like, I don't know what, like, how is that exposing? Well, it's, it's kind of hinting at a little more uh, than, than just, you know, having a good chuckle, okay? Whatever it was, we don't know. It's something, it's, it's kind of implying, you know, some kind of flirtation. It's enough where, where he looks out his window and he says, wait a minute, she, she's not his sister. She better not be his sister, And God, isn't it amazing? God uses this pagan king to rebuke this man of God. And I think what we ultimately see is not only is he protecting his people, he is protecting his promises. He had preserved her purity. Notice that. She had not been defiled in any way. God was over the whole process. He was making sure. He was superintending the whole thing. Our sin does not cancel God's promises or remove his protection. I I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And as believers, listen, we may face consequences for our sin, but I want you to hear this. But we will never face condemnation for our sin. That is the ultimate protection of God. Do you realize that? We, we, we will face, we can face earthly consequences for our sin, but we will, if we are in Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, you will never face condemnation for your sin, right? For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are safe, we are secure, we are eternally protected by the blood of Jesus Christ. He will never leave us or forsake us. He will never let us go. It doesn't matter how far you stray. It doesn't matter how deep your sin. You are held by the first firm, eternal, infinite, powerful grip of the Savior, Jesus Christ. You cannot lose your salvation if you truly have it, okay? You weren't responsible for earning your salvation. You cannot be responsible for losing your salvation. It is a divine gift of God's grace. And as it's been said before, if you could lose your salvation, you would. And so would I. But you can't, so you won't. 
And what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And Christian, can you just hear this? Is, remember Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? There's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You know Romans 8 comes after Romans 7, right? You know Romans 7 is about the battle that the believer has with sin, right? And maybe that battle of sin in your life, it causes you fear. It makes you think, maybe, maybe this is it. Maybe I, I can't be a child of God. Maybe God no longer loves me, will no longer accept me. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hallelujah. What a savior. So good for our souls to be reminded of this. So, so good to be reminded of the grace and power of our God. So should we sin so the grace may abound? (laughs) By no means. And I just, I think we can step back from this passage and learn a few more lessons. Listen, we, here's, here's a lesson I think you ought to learn if you're, if you're a child of a parent, which that's all of us. Um, we don't have to make the same mistakes our parents made. This is tragic, a tragic mistake, a generational sin passed down from father to son. And I don't know if he just kind of learned this, if it was in his genes, you know what I mean? Where it's just like, well, my father did it, so I will do it. You do not have to do what your parents did. You do not have to make the same mistakes. You do not have to sin in the same ways. And yet, tragically, do you realize, parents, how often the sins of the parents are passed down in some some strange way to the children? And I would just urge you, maybe if you're a parent here, let me just speak to you for a minute. Many, Many of us are parents here. There's something in the water. But many of us, listen, many of us, I think rightly, we rightly want our kids to experience more than we, we had, right? We, we want them to have greater opportunities. We want them to have, you know, maybe, maybe make progress in, in ways that we weren't able to when we were younger. Maybe it's financial progress, you know, economic progress. Maybe it's academic progress, career advancement. Uh, maybe it's athletics, uh, athletic progress. You know, we want them to play the sports we didn't get to play and have the opportunities we didn't get to have. And, and I think what we see in our culture is we see a very child-centric kind of family unit where parents pour an immense amount of time, energy, effort, and resources into the progress and advancement of their children in a multitude of ways. And I'm not, I'm not out on that, okay? I'm not entirely, it's not all bad, it's not all wrong, so don't hear me say that, okay? Qualification made, accepted, amen? Okay, so here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. As parents... We ought to want our kids to make progress in ways that we didn't. But can I just say, parents, listen, you ought to want your kids to make more progress in spiritual things than you have made. And and I I think, I think we we need to hear this because we're so willing as parents to invest a whole lot of those time, energy, resources, and effort into progress in things that are fine and okay but don't actually have eternal significance and value. And I just wanna urge some of you parents, maybe all of us parents in here, to maybe evaluate the kind of time, energy, effort, and resources we're pouring into the spiritual development of our kids. There's no greater legacy you can leave for your kids. Listen to me, I don't care if your kid is famous. I don't care if they're the next 
you know, NHL superstar. I don't care if they're the, the, the next, you know, major business owner. I don't care if they, they recreate you know, the culture in the world and they bring technology to advance things. It does, listen to me, that's all fine and dandy. Listen, what I care most about and what you should care most about is they love Jesus more than you ever did. But I'm telling you right now, if you're not putting in the effort, if you're not putting in the time, if you're not putting in the, this, this is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through, you realize this is a biblical truth that is impressed in, we saw this last week with parent-child dedication. Parents, hear this, hear this again, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, this is the Shema, hear, O Israel, hear, people of God, okay? You need to be about the word of God, spiritual things need to consume your heart and your mind, your life needs to be consumed by a love for the glory of God. God and the pursuit of holiness in Christ Jesus, okay? And then, then your life needs to be consumed with teaching and discipling and training up your children with every ounce of energy and strength and all the resources you can muster because the legacy of godliness that you will leave is far superior than any other legacy that you could possibly pass along. And I'm, I, I am preaching to my own heart in this too. I want this to be true of my life. And so parents, listen, just, just start finding ways. Sit with your kids. You're like, what do I do? Open the Bible with your kids. They can handle more than you realize. Read it with them. Suffer through fits and crying and temper tantrums and boredom. Suffer through it. Get better at it. Walk with your kids, okay? Listen, this is really important. This is maybe the best practical tip I can give you. Take device, remove from hand. <laughs> Yours and your kids. Get them away from the tech. I'm not, like, I'm not down on technology. Get away from these things. You're, you're being distracted, okay? You're being distracted from what is good, from what is right, what is true, what is beautiful, what is best. Sit with your kids. Walk with your kids. Talk with your kids. Draw out their heart. Memorize the word of God with them. Lead the charge. Fathers, come on, let's go. Mothers, let's, let's work together. Let's go. There's too much at stake. It's too important. And children, let me just say to you, you are supposed to learn from your parents. You are supposed to learn from what is good. And you are supposed to learn from their mistakes. The things that they've done right and the things that they've done wrong. And I want to urge you to make it your goal in life to follow Jesus better than them. And not to rub that in their face. Like, hey, I follow Jesus better than you, Dad. I, you know what? By the way, if my kid says to me, I would high-five him every time. Praise the Lord. That's what I pray for. I pray, I pray, I pray my kids know Jesus better. I, I pray they follow Jesus with all their hearts. There's, there's no greater investment you can make in kids. There's nothing more. When your parents are saying, like, listen, this is what we're doing. This is what we want to impress upon you. Listen, they love you. They care about you. They want you to love Jesus. They want you to know the true life, eternal life that's found in him. Follow in the footsteps of the faith. And the way you can do that, listen, is by remembering the protection of God and the presence of of sin, in the face of sin. His presence is there, it's real. You don't have to walk in sin. God's presence is powerful. It can protect you. You don't have to choose the path of sin in fear. You can trust God in faith. 
And when you have sinned, you can step back up and you can march forward in confidence that you do not stand as those who are condemned. You stand in confidence because Christ Jesus has made you his own. Third, rest in the provision of God's presence in the face of opposition. I love this because here is an example of a man who learns from his mistakes, like his father. One of the things we see in the life of Abraham is that yes, he falters, yes, he falls, and yes, he's humiliated on a number of occasions, but eventually he starts learning the lessons. He starts maturing, he starts growing in faith, and his walk becomes stronger and healthier in the Lord. Isaac is just like that here. He falls, yes, but he grows. In verse 12, look at what it says. And Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. I love this. In spite of his sin, God blesses him still. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy, just like Abraham. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. Again, we're supposed to see this parallel in his life. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there, and he encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. Remember, wells are symbolic. They are, they are literally provision for life, but they are symbolic in a sense of the provision of God throughout the book of Genesis. And he gave them the names of his, that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. That's what the word means. It means they contended. And then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. Again, it kind of means quarreled. And he moved from there and he dug another well and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth saying, for now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. And from there he went up to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. This remarkable harvest leads to the envy of the people in the land. And I just want you to note here that God's provision is tied to God's presence. There's a parallel here with Abraham and Lot quarreling again. The servants who quarrel over the land, they go their separate ways. But what we are supposed to take note of here is that there's opposition and conflict. No matter where Isaac reopens a well, and no matter how often the people cave them in, he ends up finding water 
And again, we're supposed to see that God is blessing Isaac, and that blessing could not be hindered. He, he names these wells the sign of, of, of ownership, excuse me. He names them essentially argument, hostility, and open space. One commentator says this He says, In these conflicts, Isaac chose not to fight back. He simply relinquished one well after another until God's blessing outdid human opposition. I love that. You know what he did? He turned the other cheek. Following in the footsteps of the faith requires great patience and great perseverance. That's what we need to see here. I mean, just think about the frustration that must have been mounted. You know how, I don't know if you've ever dug a well before, but I don't think it's very easy, okay? And if you spend all that time finally getting water, and then you come the next day with your buckets, and somebody's filled that sucker in, you're going to be pretty upset. But he just moves on. He's like, okay. He moves on. He digs another. Fill it in. Okay. And he just keeps going and keeps going until finally there's freedom and God provides in abundance. God outdoes human opposition. And I think there's a lesson to be learned here because I think, you know, many of us, we, we might be inclined to, to, in anger, rage against our opponents, probably heard the phrase outrage culture. I think that accurately captures much of our culture today. We are living in a culture of outrage. Everyone just seems on edge all the time, so quick to be angry with others, to attack, to argue, to tear down, to destroy. And the internet, right? Everybody can be a keyboard, hide behind a keyboard and go after anybody they want. And I'm, listen, I'm not... I'm not talking here about contending for the faith. We are called to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. I just think there are too many people in the world and too many people in the church who are really characterized by a sense of outrage with the world that is uncharacteristic of the calling of the people of God. I came across this quote that I want to share with you by Samuel James in a a fantastic book. It's called Digital Liturgies, and I would commend it to you. But he says this, he says, righteous people can become angry. We know that to be true. Angry people have a very hard time being righteous. It's not true, that's James, right? For the righteousness, or the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And then he goes on, he says this, the more convinced we are of the power and total truthfulness of God's word, the less volatile we will be when our beliefs and values are challenged. For those who have only earthly citizenship, Every argument, every challenge, every debate is a potential threat to their identity and security. Then he says this, listen, those with a heavenly city, however, are free to be calm, free to be silent, free to reflect carefully because they know their fate is sealed. That's Isaac. That's Isaac. He he knows what's promised to him. And like Abraham, his father, he is awaiting a better city, a heavenly one, a city with an unshakable foundation. And so he's, he's not easily agitated. He, he's not filled with outrage. Every time an enemy attacks, any time an opponent, opponent confronts him, he is convinced of the power and total truthfulness of God's word. And so he can be calm in the midst of chaos. He can be confident in the midst of confusion. 
And I, did you pick up on, on verse 24 there? Did you notice we've moved from I will be with you? Look at verse 24. And the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not. Notice this. For I am with you. It reminded me of John 16, where Jesus says these words to his disciples. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And all through the Gospel of John, specifically in chapters 14 and 15, Jesus is constantly reminding his disciples about the power of his word and the provision of his presence, right? He, He keeps telling them, abide in my words and let my words abide in you and you will bear much fruit. You think of Psalm 1, right? right? That those who meditate on the law of God day and night, right? they'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. It bears fruit in its season. The leaves will not wither. That There will be prosperity in their lives. Not, not in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel kind of way, okay? That's garbage. Throw that away. It's a lie. I'm talking about the more important prosperity way. In spiritual prosperity. In life. And the ongoing experience of the presence of God kind of way. And you see, it's resting in God that is key to persevering in faith. Resting in God is key to persevering in faith. Listen, listen, what you find your rest in is what you are placing your faith in. Where you find your rest is what you will worship. In verse 25, you want to know where Abraham is resting? You want to know where his faith is? It's in the God, Yahweh, the God he worships. So he built an altar just like Abraham had done. And there he called upon the name of the Lord. He praised God for all of his protection and all of his provision. He praised God for the rest that he found in Jehovah Jireh. And it is no wonder that Jesus Christ God with us says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Church, can you just hear this? Rest and worship are intimately tied together in the Bible. Okay? The seventh day of rest is a day of worship. And the reason is, is because it's in worshiping God, it is in delighting in his presence that our souls are refreshed and re-energized. Do you realize, when we gather together like this, you know what God is doing? God is saying to you every week, God is saying, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We come together, and we celebrate King Jesus, amen? We worship Jesus. We proclaim Jesus. We rehearse the gospel, what he's done, who he is, just like Abraham had done and Isaac had done and the people of faith have always done. We are following in the footsteps of the faith. And when we worship our God, we are given rest for our soul that helps us persevere in the midst of this dark world. We need this. That's why you need to worship God every day. That's why you need to be in his word every day. That's why you need to be praying to God every day. That's why you need to be singing songs of praise to God every day. Because every day you need to be reminded where the source of rest for your soul can be found. It's found in Jesus. Finally, reveal the peace of God's presence in the whole of life. 
When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor in Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, look at this, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So we made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. And he called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. The conflict over the wells dies down. Abimelech requested that he and Isaac make a treaty, just like the earlier kings had acknowledged that God was blessing Abraham. They want a they part of this blessing. So they make this treaty. But I think what stands out in this passage is that this king and his people realize something different about Isaac. He possesses something that they want to be near, they want to be a part of, and verse 28 spells that out. They recognize that God has been with this man. They can see plainly that God's presence was with him, and they can see the prosperity that this God has brought into his life. And I just, as we think about this, let me ask you, do people see something different in you that cannot be explained by any human answer? Do they see a joy, a love, a hope, a faith, a peace of God that surpasses all understanding? Do they see what can only be described as the presence of God among us and within us? Church, can the people around us see that there is something unique, something unusual? And if they, they thought deeply enough about it, would they, would they be able to say, clearly, the Lord has been with you? Today, listen, God's presence in the lives of believers, it can't be determined by simply looking at the the physical or the material benefits that we maybe possess, but instead by looking at the inner peace and prosperity that we ought to display throughout the whole of our lives. God's presence in us should be seen by unbelievers around us in every area of our lives as we live to the glory of God the Father. It should be seen in in hospital rooms, as is often the case, as people face uh, imminent death and families sing songs of praise and worship to the king so that the people who are watching and are are observing this, they can't make any sense of it. In the face of, of terminal disease or some kind of a diagnosis that they see instead of fear, they see a faith and a confidence and a trust in the Lord who is sovereign over all, who has the power to bring life from the dead, who promises us a living hope in Christ Jesus and a future inheritance that is kept and waiting in heaven for us. They should see it in prisons 
where believers like Paul and Silas are singing songs of praise while they're shackled in a a Roman cell. They should see it in us like Jesus who ate with tax collectors and sinners, the love of God expressed in a multitude of different ways. Do people see Christ in us, the hope of glory? Do they see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven? The invisible peace of God should be made visible in how we live the whole of our lives, and that only happens, listen, when the presence of God consumes our lives. Isaac followed in the footsteps of the faith. And he received the same blessings of God's promises and God's presence. And did you you catch that this, this ends in verse 34 and 35 kind of on a sour note, doesn't it? Esau marries outside his clan. He's polygamous. And we're meant to see this this contrast between Esau and Isaac. And we're supposed to glean from this, listen, that rejecting God's promise leads to bitterness. But receiving God's promise leads to blessing. And when you follow in the footsteps of the faith, you will receive the blessing of the presence of God himself. Don't miss that. This is the heart of this passage. Verse 3, I will be with you. Verse 24, I am with you. Verse 28, I have been with you. Listen, church, true life is found in the presence of God. It is found in Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, God with us. As we live as aliens and strangers in a foreign land, in moments of testing, in the face of sin, in the face of opposition, in the whole of life, we are assured that our God is with us and our God is for us. And if God is for us, who can stand against us? We are sent out on mission by our Savior, the one who has said, follow me. I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. And we ask that you would fill our hearts, Lord, with joy with confidence, Lord, with courage. Fill them with Christ, our Savior, who is with us and in us and for us. May we follow in the footsteps of the faith and live in the fullness of your presence. And now, oh God, would you fill our hearts with praise like that of Abraham and Isaac? Would we respond to your presence among us with worship, declaring who you are and what you've done? We ask now, Jesus, that you would receive our praise. May it be pleasing in your sight. Amen.